Coming up this hour, we tried not to, but we're going to have to talk about the debate. And then later, Bill Vanderbush talking about his new book, Reckless Grace. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. How are you today? If if you're around people, go ahead and give them a hug. It's going to be yes. it's going to be a day. I, I saw Bob Goff tweet just a couple hours ago. He says everyone should go get a puppy. Just go go <laughs> snuggle a puppy. We're we're going to need it. And I imagine the thing that makes this introduction so crazy is that you all know what I'm talking about. Everyone is already on board and aware whether you watch the debate or not, whether you're on Twitter or not, that that is probably that's pretty interesting because we don't have a lot of those moments anymore because everyone, you know, watches different TV or roots for different teams. Mm-hmm. We all kind of know what I'm talking about there. And before we kind of dive into it a little bit, Brian, I've asked our producer to string together a couple of highlights from yesterday. This will be mm, about two minutes just of some sound bites and highlights from last night's debate, and then Brian and I will talk about it. Will you Who shut is up, man? Listen, in, China in, ate your lunch, no. Joe. And You're the, the worst way, you president America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. Me, I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just agree. want to make hey, sure. Joe, I, 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 I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, I, not first in your I, class. I, <laughs> I want to make Mr. sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? No, he doesn't know how to do that. Absolutely you know what? You're wait, not wait, true. You're doing it. You're going to have true. Gentlemen. Is, I hate to raise my voice, but I see it seems to be, why shouldn't I be different than the two of you? I will tell you very simply, we won the election. Elections have consequences. We have the Senate. We have the White House. And we have a phenomenal nominee, respected by all. The American people have a right to have a say in who the Supreme Court nominee is. And that say occurs when they vote for a United States senators and when they vote for the president of the United States. They're not going to get that chance now because we're in the middle of an election already. He panicked or he just looked at the stock market. One of the two, because guess what? A lot of people died and a lot more are going to die unless he gets a lot smarter. If we would have listened to you, the country would have been left wide open. Millions of people would have died, not 200,000. And one person is too much. It's China's fault. It should have never happened. They stopped it from going in, but it was China's fault. This guy will close down the whole country and destroy our country. Our country is coming back incredibly well, setting records as it does it. We don't need somebody to come in and say, let's shut it down. We handed him a booming economy. He blew it. We have a higher deficit with China now than we did before. We have the highest deficit, trade deficit China with Mexico. Your lunch, All right, gentlemen, percent. In, 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 China ate your lunch, uh, Joe. And but, no wonder okay. your son goes in and he takes out, he takes out uh-huh. billions of dollars takes out billions of dollars to manage. He makes millions of dollars. And also, Simply while we're at true. it, why Simply is it, just out of curiosity, the mayor of Moscow's wife gave your son three and a half million dollars. What did he true. do to deserve it? That what did he do with Barista none to of deserve $183,000? None of that is true. Not answer. None of that is true. Oh, really? Totally he didn't get three and a half? All right, Brian. So I, I certainly have some thoughts, and maybe oh, depending on on how much we uh, we get to here, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later in the week as well. But you're a pastor, you're a leader, you're uh, someone who I know thinks through these things. What what are some of your takeaways from last night? 
Yeah. So on the humorous side, as I told you off air, that nobody should ever watch a debate without following Ian Simpkins on social media. Well done last <laughs> night, my man. Well, you should you should just leave it at that. Night. Just leave it at that. Make people wonder. Well done. That <laughs> Thanks, was the man. only laugh through the course of the evening that I have. To be honest with you. I uh, I watched it for like five minutes and then I would have to turn it. I'd go to baseball and then I'd come mm-hmm. back for five minutes and then back to baseball. I found it not only just uncomfortable, it really made me mad. I'm just going to be honest. And I woke up today. I was surprised that I woke up today mad about it. Um, it, it was uh, like if, if I had children who acted the way that last night went there, would we would have had to punish them. Like it was really hard to watch. And what also made it hard was there was such little substance to it. I think you and I talked about it yesterday going you already know what they're both going to say. And uh, truthfully, uh, I think much of the blame for how last night went uh, needs to be shouldered by the president, in my opinion. Uh, but I also don't think I think Biden had his moments of petulance and, and and immaturity. And you were just wanting to be like, come on, guys, like this is the highest office, not just in our country, but some would argue the world. And this is what we're going to do. And 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 at the end of it, and you watched any of the I was on NBC watching and they came on and they they were like, I don't know what to say. I literally don't know what to say. And they didn't even, they weren't able to even have a discussion about who won, who lost. What did they say? They were just literally people going, I've never seen anything like that. So I found it to be incredibly disappointing and just uh, really angering. And I had a long talk with my daughter because she's in an AP government class. So they had to watch it for for class. And I almost felt like I needed to apologize to her. Like, I'm yeah. sorry that you had to watch that, sweetie. Like, yeah. uh, anyway, I want to hear what you've got to say. All that to say, it made me angry and really disappointed. I don't think it moved the ball forward. I think it moved the ball for... The best way to sum it up is how a lot of people did on Facebook and Twitter last night. The only loser to that debate was America. Like, I feel like we yeah. all lost. Yeah, I, I saw a bunch of people posting that. And I, I will say this, because I, I did post some stuff online, you know, trying to honestly trying to lift spirits a little bit. But even in hindsight, it, yep. I, yep. it was like so discouraging. I felt like at a global scale, it was it was pretty shameful. Um, I do know I read a poll that, you know, less than six percent of people who were watching were undecided voters. So I don't even know mm-hmm. that that was even necessarily a lot of the goal. I heard a lot of people, I think rightly say, can we give Chris a mute button? Like, can that yeah. going into this next time, like people were making some jokes about it, but I thought, yeah, let's implement the talking stick from summer camp. Let's, <laughs> let's bring back the mute button. And then, you know, if all else fails, let's install trap doors. Like that's, um, and again, I, there's all sorts of other aspects of last night that I found, I just found really discouraging. I thought, the opportunity to uh, denounce white supremacy was oh, yeah. a softball. Oh, yeah. And I know a lot of people said like he has in the past, like that's, it's okay to denounce more than once. Like that is, you know, I, I told my wife, I love her on our wedding day. I've told her since then too, because it's important <laughs> to reiterate. And, yeah. you know, again, like it's to me, like it's amazing how, you know, and I, I told you off air too. I intentionally, tried to listen to and read some some real left voices and some real right voices um, mm-hmm. in preparation for today's show. And at the very end of the day, for me, I'm just grieved. Like it was it was hard to watch. I, I do think I, I mean, I think there was some rudeness on on both ends, obviously, but I don't necessarily think that it was even. It does feel right. like a lot of people who are probably you know, they're going to be diehard Trump anyway, sort of were they it. 
appeal to them, that kind of brashness, that kind of, hey, he's not being bullied. He's not going to, you know what I mean? Uh, a lot of people from that camp perhaps thought Biden looked weak, uh, but there was, I, I felt like there was more human moments, I guess, that I saw from Biden. Not not a ton, but a number of moments where I was like, oh, that's like a tender, again, you could argue that, yeah, well, tenderness isn't what we're looking for in a president, which I, I totally get. I, I have about 17 links here in the rundown of like yeah. what different faith leaders have said and how the how the globe responded and all the way down to like, here's how Twitter reacted. So that that might not be the most helpful place to start, that being Twitter or Facebook. But I don't know. Maybe maybe when we've had some more time to really like ruminate on it a bit, we'll have something more intelligible. But like right now, it, it just leaves me feeling sad. And if I saw a number of people who I know who have been in traumatic situations talk about how even like phys- how physically triggering some of that was for them. Like, gosh, it's just... Like some of the even even Sullivan seemed like like worked up at at points. Like, do you want to switch places? You know, do you want like it was? I went back and and watched some some uh, previous presidential debates and just sort of grieved at how far it seems that we've come from yeah. those days. Like even yeah. even just eight years ago. Like not I'm not talking in the 70s and 80s. I'm talking like <laughs> not that long ago. I literally you mentioned having to apologize. You know, I I had friends say I asked our kids to leave the room. Like I, I didn't want them watching the rest of it. And I thought that's that's a sad state of affairs where yeah, parents legitimately right and left are at the point where they're like, "All right, kids, why don't you go downstairs? We don't want you to continue to see this kind of behavior." And yeah. again, I know I mean, that, the one I'll yeah. go for it. The, uh, no, I'm sorry, but the one part that I talked to my daughter about, and I know we got to wrap up here, was uh, we didn't talk at all about any policy stuff. It was the whole conversation was about the tenor, the tone, yeah, the uncomfortability. Right. And that's just really sad. You think a 16-year-old watching getting a civics lesson, and it was all about how mean it was and how they wouldn't let each other. T- it was just craziness, man. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, coming up next, though, we have author Bill Vanderbush who's going to talk about his new book, Reckless Grace, and maybe just maybe – there's some elements from that book that could apply to our lives today. He's joining us next here in the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And we're absolutely thrilled to have not for one, but two segments all the way from Celebration Florida, Bill Vanderbush. Welcome to the show, sir. Man, I'm so glad to be here. It's an honor. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Would you just take a, a minute or two or five, if you want to, and introduce yourself <laughs> to our audience? <laughs> wow. Well, let's see. I, I do live in the Disney town. That's what Celebration is. It, it is a town built by Disney about a 25, 26 years ago. And really an amazing place filled with amazing people. We've got a wonderful community around us. And uh, and some years ago, uh, I guess I've, I've been pastoring now for 25 years. Austin, Texas, the island of Maui. I was over there for a little while. Wow. Well, if you're going to go pastor in Maui, you know, it's, it's not like you really have to have a call from God to do that. You just, <laughs> you just, you know, I didn't really have to pray about that one too hard. I just went and uh, that was a pleasure. I was an underwater videographer over there for a little while and uh, also pastored a church over there. Pastored three different churches in Austin. I uh, was up in Dallas for a little while ministering. So over the course of time, God led us to uh, to Florida, mainly because our kids uh, decided they wanted to come and work for Disney World and which was sort of like this weird halfway answer to prayer because we always prayed, God, let our kids be servants in the kingdom. But we never really stopped to think about what exactly we were praying about, really. Which kingdom? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're praying for your kids, like, be super specific because that's kind of important. Um, 
So our kids moved uh, moved here, went to college here, worked for Disney, and uh, and then they moved on. We followed them out here. We became those parents that followed their kids. We came out here, and and over the course of time, while they were working here, they uh, we, we established just an really really incredible uh, connection with a, a church down here, and and built a wonderful network of people. And uh, over the course of uh, course of that, God really started stirring in our hearts this uh, this amazing thing on this Reckless Grace book, which was a message I started preaching about 10 years ago uh, at our community in Austin and had an incredible impact there. Never really thought about it becoming a book, though, until I ran into uh, my co-author, Britt Eaton, in Ohio at a conference who uh, came up to me and told me how the message had impacted, changed her life. And she said, I really feel like we need to do this as a book. And I said, what do you do? She says, she says, I am a ghostwriter. And I said, wow, that's fantastic. I need a ghostwriter. So let's, let's do this. So, um, so that's, that's how the book went from sermon to print. Wow. That's awesome. So this book, Reckless Grace, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, you got, you kind of got into why you wrote it, but what's the book about? What, what is the book Reckless Grace about? Well, you know, it's actually it's actually based on a sermon I've never heard preached on before. And uh, it's it's the idea of uh, what Jesus said in John chapter 20 and verse 23, where he uh, he's just risen from the dead. He's just appeared to the disciples. They're huddled together in this locked room uh, for fear of the Jews. They're terrified. And in the middle of that environment, Jesus just shows up and he appears and he says, peace to you, which is ironically, I think what you would probably have to say if you just appeared in the middle of a locked room to people who thought you were dead. So he calms them down, then he breathes on them, which is only two two times in the Bible that God actually does that. Once in Genesis, God breathes into man, creates man in his image and likeness, and you see man created as a kind of a combination here of the mud and dust of earth and the breath and the spirit of God. And man is born as a divine convergence zone between heaven and earth. You know, he's man is not, we're not God. God is not us, but we're more than dirt because no other creation on earth was ever created, animated by the very breath of God. So then Jesus, when he raises from the dead and he appears to these guys, he breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. As the father sent me, I send you. He's just, he's just, just releasing, just commissioning these guys. And then he says this very bizarre statement that I had never heard. This is the part I'd never heard preached on before. And it was in John chapter 20, verse 23. And I just always glossed over it because it, it, just, it seemed a little weird to me at the time when I read it. I mean, growing up in church, growing up, I mean, I, you, you read the Gospel of John. It's like one of the first things you read in Christianity 101. But I get to this verse and I just jump over it because it went beyond my understanding. And I felt like the Lord was drawing my attention back to this verse and saying, pay, pay close attention to this. But it, it's where Jesus says, and whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Hmm. And I just looked at that. I scratched my head like, what? I mean, because hmm. I, 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 I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to look at this with just naked eyes. I want to see, I want to see this f- without any preconceived ideas about any theological background, you know, that I come from or whatever. What would it look like if I just took this at face value? I felt like the Lord was giving me a challenge I, as if to say, I want you to, to just pretend like I was actually serious here. What would the ramifications be for your life, Bill, I feel like, you know, again, this is God speaking to my heart saying, what would the ramifications be for your like life if you actually believed that this was true? If you mm-hmm. believed that the grace you gave away actually mattered, or if you believe that the unforgiveness you hold 
actually mattered. What would it be like? And, and I realized it would change a lot of things because when it came to people's salvation, when it came to forgiveness and whatnot, I had no problem shoving people off into a corner to, you know, get right with God, you know, make their peace with the Lord. But when it came to me, my responsibility to them, I, I didn't necessarily feel like I didn't necessarily feel like I had I had that that um, that mandate, that responsibility on me. You know, I, I was never the source of grace. It was him. It was Jesus. It was his blood. It was his cross. It was his resurrection, not me. But then again, what if I was now given both the right and the responsibility to put that grace on display? So the book is never saying that we are the source of grace. That's not the, the, the idea behind it at all. He always is the source of grace. We are simply in the book saying, let's just let's just issue a challenge to people to come into agreement with what he already believes. And then the entirety of the book is essentially unfolding what he believes about people. Uh, how he he desires for them to be free, uh, but for for example, one of the thoughts in the book that's kind of pivotal is the the Luke four eighteen uh, passage where Jesus is starting his earthly ministry, and he said, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me; He's anointed me to preach the gospel, proclaiming freedom and liberty." And then he points out two groups of people: to captives and prisoners. And the the words there are super important because captives are in chains and in bondage because of what somebody else has done. Wasn't their fault. Mm -hmm. Wasn't their choice. Somebody else made a choice and now they have to suffer. Prisoners on the other hand, usually not always, but usually are in chains or in bondage because of what they have done. It was their choice. And so I, I think in our human justice system, uh, we we would default to the idea that captives need to be freed because that wasn't their fault. That's justice. Prisoners, on the other hand, you do the crime, you've got to do the time. And Jesus, on the other hand, he he elevates the perspective of the entire justice system altogether when he looks at people and goes, you know, as if it, as if if it's a father looking at his children with a voice that only a father could have toward children, whether they're innocent or guilty, and simply says. I see my kids in captivity and in prison. They're in chains. They don't belong in chains. They were never born to be in chains. Therefore, however they got there, that's a side issue. We'll deal with that later. My first order of business is freedom. So then it becomes the kindness of that freedom released in the grace of God that leads us to a place of repentance or to change the way we think. And so that's essentially a, 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 the book in a nutshell. Yeah. That's good. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Bill Vanderbush. He is both a pastor and an author of the new book, Reckless Grace. And he's going to stick around for one more segment as we take a deeper dive into that book. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And we're joined for a second segment by pastor and author Bill Vanderbush, who wrote a new book called Reckless Grace. And we've been kind of taking a deeper dive into what that book is all about. And one of the themes that I know that you explore, and it's a conversation, Bill, that comes up a lot around this topic of grace, is whether or not we as Christ followers are required to embrace people who have caused us a lot of pain or a lot of, a lot of harm. Like what, what are some of the boundaries that you outline that are important for us to keep in mind between like extending grace, but also like not perpetuating or enabling like sin and brokenness. Can you walk us through some of that? Yeah, no, that's, that's such a, such an important question. There's so many different facets to it. So I'm going to try to get to just a couple of important ones today. 
I think one of the first things to re- remember when it comes to grace is that grace is not just giving, it's not a ph- philosophical idea that gives people a free pass. Uh, grace is at the very core of its definition is a person. It's not a concept, an idea or a philosophy. It is defined in Christ himself. So then ultimately is the personhood of Christ, the very spirit of the resurrected Christ that gives us, uh, I guess, access, I would say access to the grace of God. Um, he is giving us his nature. Now, his nature was to be a living invitation for people to discover their true identity. So when it comes to people who have hurt us, caused us pain, one of the first things we have to understand is we're not oftentimes, I think, dealing so much with a sin issue as we're dealing with an identity issue. Most of the sin issues in our life are at their core identity issues. So, for example, somebody, let's say, um, somebody is an abusive parent, let's say it's a common one, a father is incredibly abusive to a child, and that child grows up and, and, and then what ends up happening? Well, they, their example, they know that that was wrong, that was terrible, they don't ever want to do that, but they stay focused in on that uh, as, as kind of a way of how to do life. And then oftentimes you see, and again, this is a hard, fast rule, but psychologists will tell, tell us that oftentimes abusive, abused children become abusive parents themselves because what they're doing is fixating on uh, fixating on something they don't want to be but when it comes time to to exercise that parenthood or those parental skills they turn to the one example that they have which is unhealthy and so uh, what forgiveness does is it frees the forgiver it takes our eyes off of the false identity of somebody else's brokenness and sets our eyes on to Christ who teaches us really how to be human but what it also does is it has, it has an effect on doing something in our heart toward our abusers or toward those who we would consider even enemies. And uh, I would say it, it, it causes us to actually recognize the, the mandate to be a living invitation for them to see the truth of who they really are. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus, you know, or the God, God says in Psalm 23, he says, I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Well, it doesn't make any sense. If I'm in the presence of an enemy, you should be handing weapons out, right? Or building walls or something. That's not a political statement. But, you know, the, the, <laughs> idea, the idea, though, is that he's preparing a table because in that culture, you come together at a table for the purpose of gaining understanding, hearing somebody else's story. And once you connect around that table, you may begin to realize that you are... Uh, you're filled with a compassion that actually uh, puts on display the fruit of the spirit of kindness, gentleness, self-control, meekness, which is strength under control, in a way that actually allows your words, the sound of your words, to carry the resonant frequency of heaven to invite another person's heart to actually see that they're actually your brother. And they lay down a false identity and pick up a whole new one. And that's, I think, what, one of the things that we have the, have the power to do with this thing of grace is to be ambassadors of Christ, to be ambassadors of heaven, to carry the sound of heaven in, in, in every interaction. Otherwise, it ends up becoming, you know, my offense that speaks. And, uh, and I think uh, what, the, what the sound of heaven releases over people is eternal life, an invitation to salvation. And so, you know, people that have hurt us, caused us pain, you know, Jesus told us what to do with those people, and it's it's a hard statement to hear, and it's an even harder statement to pervert, and it's where Jesus says, love your enemies. Yeah. Um, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. I mean, that's like the defining of love your enemies isn't some philosophical idea that we just kind of keep in the back of our mind, make us feel good. No, it's, 
it's defined as pray for those, not against. We're super good at praying against things. That's why the world is more familiar, I think, with what the church is against than what we're for. Um, they can all tell us what we're against, but not real sure on what we're for because we, we have, I think, far more volume to the things that we're against when it comes to our speech publicly. And, uh, and he says, pray for, uh, pray for my enemies. Like, I don't understand that. And then, and then bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you. In other words, from a place of malicious contempt, actually set out to, to be abusive, to be hurtful. That's the, actually their motivation. I'm supposed to bless and pray for those people. It, it is the hardest statement of Jesus to pervert. As a matter of fact, I would say it's an impossible statement for us to pervert. And Jesus wasn't talking in that moment to, you know, a Western superpower with the world's largest nuclear arsenal. He was talking to a group of people who were under occupation from a corrupt governmental system and, and were systematically being executed just for the purpose of, of, of keeping them under the thumb of fear. And Jesus is sitting here looking to these people who are under that abusive system, surrounded by the, their abusers, and says, I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. Now, if we allow that statement to impact us with, and this is a phrase I love to use, the resonant frequency of heaven, the, the sound of heaven, it, it'll melt hearts of stone that have been calloused by the pain of of life, people whose lives have literally been broken on the wheels of living at the hands of somebody else. And we will suddenly discover that that when we release grace over somebody who doesn't deserve it, which is kind of the nature of grace in the first place, that we start to actually begin to experience the very thing that we're giving away. And in that moment, we suddenly realize the truth of the fact that forgiveness does absolutely free the forgiver. And, and I tell you, if people will give this a shot, if they'll lean into this, um, they end up they end up becoming grace addicts. Actually, <laughs> that's a yeah. terrible choice of words. But you know. <laughs> Bill, I'm curious. What would you say? And I know this is probably an unfair question with just like a minute and a half, two minutes left. What would you say to the person out there who goes, "I get showing others grace. I just can't believe that God would ever show me grace. Like yeah. I've done too much. I just can't believe that God would do that for me." What would you say? Oh to that my person? goodness! You know, the hardest person to forgive is yourself. When it comes down to it, we can actually have grace for, for the most evil, vile people who've done the most evil, vile things around us. When it comes to us, we, I think ourselves, a person in the mirror, we have a hard time forgiving. Right after the Lord's Prayer, though, Jesus issues what could be considered to be, I, I would say, a warning, but it, it's more of an invitation. And I mean, if I can just put this out there, it's like this, you know, God is love and uh, perfect love casts out fear. So whenever we read a word of Jesus and fear is our automatic response, then we just misunderstood what love said. And so I was drawn back to the verses right after the Lord's Prayer for the purpose, I think, of just just discovering the beauty of the invitation in it. And it's the verses that say, he says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you trespasses. If you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. So we suddenly begin to realize a couple of quick things about this. First one is that unforgiveness is a non-negotiable. It's absolutely, it's, it's, it's not like we ever have the right to retain anybody's sins. Um, God doesn't grant us that right. But on the flip side of that, what we begin to realize is as we release grace over somebody else, then we suddenly begin to start becoming recipients of the grace of God in our own lives. 
So when he says, you know, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. Think of it like this. I become like a conduit through which grace flows. And as I release grace to somebody else, more flows to me from heaven. I start to realize that God has an, as an inexhaustible bank of mercy and grace to pour over my life. Now, on the flip side of that, um, if I release judgment over somebody else, I start to actually suffer under the weight of a self-inflicted condemnation. And people will say, well, does that actually happen? Absolutely. Look, I mean, in our own lives, if a person wants to experience the crushing perspective of condemnation on their own lives, just spend your life being judgmental and watch what happens. But the more grace you release over others, you start to begin to feel like you're under a deluge, a waterfall of it, and, and it becomes an incredibly, incredibly healing thing. So I think it's more of an invitation than a warning, actually. That's awesome. really good. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Bill Vanderbush, author of the new book, Reckless Grace. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today, brother. We appreciate it very Thank much. You. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm on this National Chewing Gum Day. Oh, I love gum. <laughs> I do. I just do. That is an edgy, that's an edgy take, <laughs> Reverend Fromm. What's your What's your three favorite things about chewing gum? Oh, that's I don't I don't know that, but man, I my wife will like hide gum because I take so much of it. She says so. I've I have a gum thing. Yes, I love gum. It's like my holiday I, today. I don't think I've ever heard somebody say I have a gum thing <laughs> in my life. That that is going to go down. Forget the first segment we were talking about, the debates. That's that's what I'm remembering from today's show. Brian Fromm, <laughs> I have a gum thing. That is, I have a gum thing. Woo, boy. All right. We'll, uh, we'll psychoanalyze that during it. the break. <laughs> right. Uh, what do I got to tell you about? Okay. So we're on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. You can comment on articles there. Somebody from our account asked people to leave a GIF about their reactions to the debate. I don't know. I don't know so who funny. that was. That, so we got some funny. real funny responses there. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get your podcasts. You guys know the drill, but any amount of subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing it even, that stuff helps us out a ton. And uh, we know that plenty of you already have, so we're really grateful for that. Uh, I mentioned this, I guess, yesterday. Brian and I, it's not a parenting podcast, obviously, and Brian's much more experienced in this department, but we know that uh, parenting is a topic that, at least for the two of us, is close to our hearts. It's a reality that we live in. and you add, you know, coronavirus and this whole Zoom reality into all of that mix. And it feels like a pretty important topic right now. So I found this this article over at Sojourners called Raising the Coronavirus Generation. How will our ongoing traumas affect the ways our kids see the world, God and faith? What's going on here? Yeah, this article, as you said, out of Sojourners, written by Sandy Villarreal, said raising the coronavirus generation starts like this, says each spring I plan how to survive the summer. Without the school year routine, our family leans on relatives, friends, summer camps, and cobbled together vacation time to get our kids through. But this year, everything stopped. In a pandemic, you can't visit grandma or drop the toddlers off for a play date. And while the nation collectively experiences this ongoing trauma, parents are attempting to shepherd our children through the same. Later on, she says, the sense of security, the sense of security goes out the window in a pandemic, unforeseen economic collapse and necessary reordering of our institutional constants. Parents face new risks with precious little and ever-changing data to guide our analysis. 
The most common fear shared by parents I've spoken to is that our kids won't be okay. That in trying to find the balance between naked truthfulness and parental protectionism, we'll lean too heavily to one side. That the wrong decisions will leave lasting marks that follow them into adulthood. And so we'll pause there for a second. I, I do think that as we talk about um, how will the kids, how will our children be? I've got school age kids, as we've talked about, who've been doing school from home. Uh, all of their rhythms have been really kind of shooken up down to your age kids of one, two, three years old, where maybe they couldn't see grandma and grandpa for a while, or they can't go to their favorite park or couldn't go to the favorite park. And the question I think that's hanging out there for all parents is what is the long-term effects on our, on our kids going to be? Cause we always say, ah, they'll be fine. They're resilient. But I think she raises a very interesting point. And that's this, when we ask, will our kids be okay? Maybe, hopefully, but that we've never been through anything like this before. The extents of the extended nature of this, the time of this, and to go, what's the long uh, term um, effects going to be on this next generation, I think is a really legitimate and somewhat scary question. Do you, do you really think most parents think, ah, they'll be fine, they're resilient? Not when it comes to coronavirus, I don't mean, but in general, I think a lot of times you, at least how I think in normal life, quote unquote normal, you know, like kids have a, you know, they get a bad grade or that, you know, something goes on in their life and you're just like, oh, they'll be okay. It's normal kid stuff. They'll be, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I find that to be the normative position even pre coronavirus, to be honest. Really? Okay. No. Maybe I'm more, maybe I'm more laid back. (laughs) Oh, I mean, that's for sure. I just think in general, I don't, I don't think that. That's the that's the collective kind of median response personally. But who like who knows? Like that's you know, you mentioned at the top for kids my age, I think it's way deeper than just ah, they couldn't see grandma for a while or they missed their favorite park. Like they're all you know, they're already missing out on some of the socializing. There is a certain part mm-hmm. of me that thinks, Well, maybe it's better that they're this young, you know, like in our case, maybe yeah, by yeah. the time we are able to pull out of this and whatever whatever the world looks like then. They won't have much recollection of it. But my my wife, who's an educator, is you know regularly reminding me. She's like, it's not just about recollection, though. There's stuff that's being kind of formed and hardwired in them that they might not ever have any like direct specific memory of. Oh, but it's still it's still shaping them, you know, and she's got yeah. all the training and education to speak to that and to, and to know. So like some of that for me has been helpful to kind of mitigate my fear versus my resolve versus like, OK, well, how you know, how willing are we? to to let them like they're doing an outdoor preschool thing that my wife and some friends started once a week and uh you know like that's a lot of extra work and they're coordinating lesson plans and where they're going to meet but they're like yeah it's important for us to do these things though because they would be at a regular preschool now anyway and because i can't you know that we can't you know we can't provide a five day a week preschool but we can do something and i think that's where a lot of parents are finding themselves now they're like okay i want to do something regardless of the age of my kids to try to reintroduce some level of normalcy, but not, you know, not nearly to the degree that it would have been a year ago, but to just try to take baby steps toward that, I think is where, at least in my experience, a lot of parents kind of find themselves right now. Yeah, absolutely. This quote here says this from the article, having honest age appropriate conversations with children about what's happening around them is also important for their development through the crisis. And I think, uh, to your point, I think that's important with all ages. It's, uh, it's such an important time for parents to continue to be really intentional through this, to talk your kid, talk with your kids, to ex- to explain to your kids, hey, this is hard for mom and dad, too. Like, this isn't what what we're used to either. Like those feelings of 
uh, of just kind of being unsettled are natural. And let's talk about them. I know we've had to have, especially uh, with our younger kids, just some very intentional talks about like, this is just what, how, how, okay, this is our reality now. How are we going to make the best of it? What are we uh, struggling with and having those conversations? And I'm sure those conversations look much different with kids, your kids age, but like your wife said, like they're still being formed, like there's still important stuff going on um, because they are, they're missing, you know, their normal school and they're missing, uh, you know, activities are all thrown out. Different parents allow different kids to do different things. And now their reality is just to have to wear a mask and do this. It's, it, it seems like they're getting used to it. But at the same time, like you said, uh, at all, everything they're, they're used to has just been thrown up and, and just changed. Either way, this is on the Facebook page, like everything. And we would love to know what you think. You've listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about some stuff. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And it has been a day on The Common Good. We are having all sorts of tech problems, (laughs) tech issues, as my uh, grandma used to say, the demons in the soundboard. She she didn't have a southern accent though. I don't know why I gave her a southern accent. Because every um, grandma has a southern accent in, that in is our minds, at least inaccurate. But I did mention today is <laughs> National Chewing Gum Day, and Brian let out an audible. Oh, I love chewing gum. That's right. That's Which, right. Uh, I I'm going to let out the same noise for another day that today is National Hot Mold Cider Day. Oh my goodness. Huh. You're not, you're not okay. reacting, so I'm assuming you you've never had it, or you're assuming correctly. Do you know what it is? What is the word? What was the second word? Hot what? Mold. Like, uh, I don't think so. I don't think You've so. Never had hot mold cider. I, I'm being thrown by the middle word there. So what is the drink? Is it just hot apple cider? Mm, no, it's mold, Brian. M-U-L-L-E-D. Mold. I have never. No, I've not. Please describe it for me and our audience. How about that? Uh, you're just going to have you're going to have to Google it. I mean, if you like cider and delicious things and being joyful and feeling alive, this that's a <laughs> beverage I would recommend. Um, okay. uh, it's also National Love People Day, which that's a good one. That day following the day after the debate to me seems intentional. And uh, again, I don't know why that's under the category of weird. It's always like, ooh, here's a weird day. National Love People Day. I'm like, why is, why is that one weird? <laughs> Chewing Gum Day, I totally get. It's also National yep. Mud Pack Day, which is breaking news. I don't know why I'm spending so much time on this. I just thought it was... Uh, I thought it I'm was looking at hot mulled cider right now online. It looks delicious, but no, I don't think I've ever had one. That is disappointing. Um, I will drink one while watching The Social Dilemma. How about that? I mean, you've been saying that. For, <laughs> for a, a week a week so yeah we'll see again you're defending yourself like a week is a reasonable amount of time only because you're comparing it to how long it took you to ask alexa that's why your true your metrics need to be recalibrated the bar low i set that bar low <laughs> <laughs> sounds like intentionally so a uh, couple of things real briefly you can find us on facebook the common good radio show there's a lot of activity going on over there you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get your podcast. It is 
National Love People Day. One of the ways that you could love us over at The Common Good is to subscribe, rate, review, and then share it with a friend. And uh, we'll give you a digital high five if you do that. Thanks so much for those of you who already have. This isn't necessarily, I don't have like a particular angle on this necessarily, but it's from the Christian Post. And the headline I thought was interesting. It says, Atheist Group Files Brief Supporting Christian Students' Right to Evangelize on Campus. This is actually a perspective that you've taken a couple of times when we've mm-hmm. talked about religious freedoms, especially in schools. Why don't you give us a brief overview of what's going on here? Yeah, it's really interesting. An atheist group, it says here at the Christian Post, has filed a brief in support of a lawsuit against a Georgia college that punished a Christian student for preaching outside of a limited free speech zone on campus. It says the American Humanist Association uh, filed an amicus brief on Tuesday uh, in the case of two really long names, which will be argued before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, The Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative lawsuit, a law firm filed suit against George Gwinnett College for the treatment of Christian student Chike Uzagabunam. I got that right. I nailed that. Uh, although the schools changed their policy on free speech and expression since stopping him from preaching, they've refused to accept any penalty for their past actions. And so uh, the interesting part of this story, as you said, is that an atheist group has come along and said, no, we think you treated that Christian incorrectly. Uh, and like you said, this goes to what I've said often on this show is like, I think if you want to have religious freedom for your religion, you've got to be willing to fight for the religious freedom of other religions as well. Uh, they said religious freedom, the cornerstone of our democracy, uh, could become an empty promise without nominal damages. And so uh, I think there's a great lesson to be learned here. Like we oftentimes, the Christians groups that I've been around and been associated with from a distance, it's often like we're only going to fight for the rights of Christians. But if it's, you know, the Muslims or the atheists who are being uh, who have lost their freedom of some set in the public square, uh, we won't stand up and fight for them. And I think the the lesson here is a uh, we need to fight for others because then that becomes the standard used for us as well. And also because it's just the right thing to do. So I do find this interesting. It's very headline grabbing an atheist group supporting a Christian student. Yeah. Do you think people might uh, take issue with this or maybe a follow up or just different perspective would be, do you find that you come across uh, other stories where Christians are doing the same for atheist groups or other religions, other faith groups? Um, are these things happening in your perspective? Are we just not seeing them? Like, what what is your take on how well we as Christians are maybe doing this in the other direction? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. I know you and I have done some stories over the course of our of our show in which this has been happening, uh, where Christian law groups have taken up the cause or fought. Um, but I would guess hmm, this might be I, I'm doing this anecdotally. I would guess a lot of Christians uh feel a lot more passion about we've got to have the right to evangelize the Christian faith than saying, hey, listen. Uh, just as we want to have freedom here, the atheist group and the Muslim group has to have that same freedom. Uh, but hopefully we're not so, so short-sighted as to see, uh, even as we think about our own rights, that for, for a group to lose their rights, it could just as easily be the Christian group that loses its rights. So we've got to kind of all fight this together. That's a long-winded way of saying, I'm not sure how we're doing, but I hope that we're not so naive as to think, well, as long as they're treating us well, we're good. That's going to flip at some point. And it's, like I said, it's just the right thing to do. 
Uh, I mean, do you have a sense how we as Christians are doing with this? Well, I, I was actually going to say something a little different. I thought you were going there. I actually think, ironically, or maybe not, maybe that's not a proper use of irony. Uh, I think one of the best ways to evangelize is to fight for other faith groups' rights. I think Interesting. Like the scenario that you depicted where, and I don't know that it's right or not. I don't know if we're just not privy or these don't, they're not headline grabbing. Um, but I, I think if the, if your scenario is right, that perhaps Christians are disproportionately concerned only with their rights to evangelize and not the rights of other faith groups on campus, I, I think, and again, I don't have data necessarily to back this up, although I, maybe I could find some. I think maybe one of the best ways, if evangelism is your main priority, one of the best ways to evangelize, to show the love of God to others, is to stand in the gap on behalf of people who look and talk and act and believe and vote differently than you do. I think the great irony is when we only focus on evangelism, we maybe arguably hurt our evangelism. But when we actually think about like loving and caring for our neighbor and the people who, you know, maybe maybe we otherwise wouldn't associate with or wouldn't see as as similar. I think when we do that, I think people I think that sends a stronger message than like what you and I talked about growing up with sort of the clipboard at the mall approach. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I think you make a great point there. And I think framing it as love your neighbor as well is an important thing here. Uh, but again, uh, don't be so naive as to think, well, we'll let them go after the atheists, if you will, as long as they leave us Christians alone. It's uh, you're it's going to come back on you at some point. So even if you're just being uh, self-protective here, it's a good thing. But I also think beyond that, it's a way to be, like you said, a good neighbor and to show the love of Christ to people who don't believe the same thing as you. Like you said, a way to love your neighbor. Ironically, as you said, it might be the best evangelism tool out there often. And I, I think that's a challenge for us. I think we need to think in, in bigger terms. A lot of us need to think in bigger terms in, in that way, rather than, like you said, just whatever is just good for me is all I'm going to yeah. be worried about. Right, right. I totally agree. Coming up next, this article was written uh, almost a week ago, so this isn't necessarily in response to anything from last night, but out of relevant, what is the Christian posture for the upcoming election? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. How are you doing today? I feel like we should ask that more often. And I know that people can't necessarily respond in real time. But, you know, if you want to send us a message over the Facebook page, you could do that. If you have ideas, by the way, for future shows or future topics or even future guests, that, that is a great place to get a hold of us. And we would really love to hear from you. We would also love for this platform, this space, to be a place for us to disagree. But respectfully with love to be a place where you know we can work to maybe find some common ground in these increasingly divided times and speaking of divided times i figured why not talk about the upcoming election this is something that i imagine we're gonna talk about a whole lot more coming up and maybe even just by the headline somebody is already feeling uh, a little a little heated it's not irrelevant it says what is the christian posture for the upcoming election. Let me just read a little bit from this article. And yeah. uh, Brian and I are going to duke it out battle royale style. It says, <laughs> uh, in awaiting the king, James K. A. Smith offers a powerful rejoinder to our political short-sightedness, calling for Christians to recover, quote, a kind of holy ambivalence about our relationship to the political, a sort of engaged but healthy distance rooted in our uh, specifically es eschatological hope, running counter to progressivist hubris, triumphalistic culture wars and despairing cynicism with this quote 
Smith has deftly outlined four political postures. One, holy ambivalence. Two, progressivist hubris. Three, triumphalistic culture wars. And four, despairing cynicism. As we approach another highly contest, uh, contentious election, it's worth exploring these four options. I don't typically stop reading this early in an article, but I'd love yeah. to know what do you think of like those those four proposals that Smith lays out? Yeah, I'm interested to hear to see them kind of unpack these because they're they're big ones. Um, yeah, I, I think they're right. This triumphalistic culture wars, like I, they use words like hubris and wars and cynicism and ambivalence. Uh, it really does begin to wrap up this contentious political season that we're in, or just this political uh, culture that we're in right now. Those are all very negative words, right? Culture wars and mm-hmm. ambivalent and. And I think it starts to get at where a lot of people are at. It's such a contentious time. And like you said, it's interesting. This was written before last night's debate. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I wanted to mention that at the onset because I, I could imagine somebody maybe reading something different into this. And yeah, it was written on the 24th of September. So uh, it says, though, we may be tempted to immediately associate it with the various radical approaches to freedom and human identity that run the gamut from sexual revisionism to the numerous transhumanist projects gaining traction among our cultural elites, progressivist hubris fits well with any philosophy that sees humanity as the measure of all things. Seen in this light, plenty of self-identifying Christians embrace a version of this political philosophy. It crops up wherever we see our lives as our own and try to take hold of a version of Christianity that offers minimal interference with our personal preferences. Triumphalistic culture warring also cuts across political divides, and it arises from a sense of moral superiority. In the coddling of the American mind, Jonathan Haidt and Greg, oh boy, Lukanoff, uh, identify a corrosive mindset that's informing our growing tribalism, namely the belief that life is a battle between good people and evil people. Here, we don't want to be naive. History repeatedly teaches us uh, that few things are as dangerous as an unassailable conviction of one's moral superiority. Such a mindset can be a recipe for chaos since it removes all constraints on general principle. If we're dealing with people we believe to be misguided or misinformed, we can continue to aim at persuasion. But if we're dealing with evil people, we can enter into an ends justify the means frame of mind. I don't know if you're finding this to be true, Brian, but I do certainly. And again, I don't think Twitter or Facebook is like the best of us. So take all of those platforms with a grain of salt. But I do, I do find, um, I don't know that people are outright necessarily en masse pointing a finger and calling people straight up evil, but it does seem like some right. of our rhetoric is heading in that direction. I don't know. I don't know if you're sensing that or not. Oh, totally. I, when you read that, if we're dealing people, if I think you're just wrong, like you're misguided and misinformed, then I'm going to want to have a conversation with you that says, "Hey, let me und- let me help you understand kind of why I think you have this wrong." Um, but once I look at you and I demonize you, I go, "Not only are you wrong, but you're." a bad person or what have we talked about the uh, last couple of weeks, people saying you disagree with me. You can't be a Christian like these right. kinds of things. Now you become the enemy. And and anytime oh, I yeah. see someone who's disagreeing with me as the enemy, you start getting into dangerous playing things like what they say here, the ends begin to justify the means and we could treat people really poorly. Mm, I think you're right, man. It was on to say, since it trends to focus on the spiritual decay of our culture, cynical withdrawal is much more prevalent among religiously minded people, those who belong to high church traditions in particular, which I think is an interesting observation. Unlike the first two options, this one is not as easy to dismiss. There's good reason, for instance, 
for Christians to take into careful consideration what it means to belong to Christ rather than the world. That's, by the way, a phrase that I've been hearing a lot lately. All too often, uh, our efforts at reaching Christianity's, quote, culture despisers terminate in our own seduction. Given the current state of the North American church, we can't afford to be naive about our susceptibility to temptation. However, cynical withdrawal can and often does foster a spiritual elitism that's a close cousin of the, quote, life as a battle between good people and evil people mindset. In this version, we see ourselves as a blessed remnant who must flee the surrounding squalor to preserve our spiritual integrity. While it's true that we are set apart and in the world, but not of it, we must not allow our political posture to descend into a sense of moral superiority. Not a one of us is exempt from the human condition. And if our culture is in steep decline, we are certainly part of that decline. Times of strategic withdrawal have their legitimacy, but we cannot indulge in a political posture that fails to recognize our culture and political opponents as neighbors. I, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that one because it there we certainly have some church mothers and fathers who have chosen more of a uh, withdrawal mindset, and I think very intelligent people throughout history, particularly of the Christian tradition, have chosen to do so. What, what do you think of their their treatment of that particular posture? Yeah, I think they're trying to get at if that withdrawal becomes so far that you're just uh, just remove yourself from trying to be any good here on earth, right? Like it's hey, we're just going to be with our bubble and we're going to kind of wait out our time, and um, you know, I, I think that it. I when I read this one, not to the degree they describe, but I'm like, I've got that in me of going, hey. I almost just tweeted last night and it would have been appropriate during the debate. Just Jesus is Lord. But like yeah. as a way of saying, I don't want to have to worry about anything that's going on on that stage right now right, 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 and right. have to think about it all. So I totally get this. But but we as Christians are called to be not of the world, but in the world and bringing about change and being uh, loving our neighbors and being the hands and feet of Jesus, being Christ's ambassadors. And so I don't think we've been given this withdrawal option, even if this isn't, quote unquote, our home and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, and I do think it's worth mentioning again and again. And I, it's interesting because I sometimes feel like, oh, man, Ian 10 years ago might not have felt that way. But in some cases, it it is kind of a position of privilege to say, I'm going to opt out of this debate or I'm going to opt out of this particular mm-hmm. issue. I don't want to be political. Well, really what we're saying is like that particular discussion doesn't really affect me, but it most certainly most likely affects someone else. And so for me, it's like, mm-hmm. not, my, not my problem. It is there is a certain level of privilege that says, I'll catch the next one. And uh, I, well, I'm going to be in the world, not of it, which, you know, again, is um, no one's doing it that blatantly. You know what I mean? And that's that's yes. that's part of what's so important. And I think, uh, I don't know, it's there's a lot of loss of nuance when we engage predominantly digitally. And which is why I think it's becoming easier and easier to sort of demonize either specific people, but probably more commonly specific groups of people. Uh, because I'm not having coffee with them. I'm not engaging in a dialogue with them. I mean, even even with regards to the debate last night, we didn't really see much of a conversation no. at all. And I, I saw a number of people say, this is a mirror. Like, this is sort of what we are right now. We mm-hmm. meaning America. And I think mm-hmm. that is a that is a helpful posture to step back rather than simply saying, what a garbage fire that was. It was it's maybe more introspective, maybe more spiritually helpful to say, uh, how did we get here? We meaning, yeah. you know, all of us. And I think either way, there's a lot of this article we didn't read, but I think there's some really helpful cautions, but also a helpful way forward. And as always, we would love to know what you think over on our Facebook page, the common good radio show coming up next. You want to, do you want to talk some Facebook? You want to talk tech? I do. 
Let's yeah, sure. do it. Coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. I Am I not supposed to say welcome back? I say that every time. I'm okay with it. I think we're good with it. Yeah. No, I know that you're probably okay with it. We've already mentioned you might be more Akuna Matata than me, just in general. True, but true, uh, true. what were some of the rules we were told at the very beginning, things not to say? Let's say all of them. Uh, we are not going on a break. There was something about a break we're not supposed to say, even though I say it often. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to not say it when we come back. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're not but, supposed to be going, handing it off to a break because people will leave when they're on a break. <laughs> But I begin uh, every segment saying, welcome back. I wonder if that's a do. problem. We're going to find out uh, probably soon. <laughs> yeah. Now that we've dedicated this much real estate to talking about it, there's a, uh, I'm trying to think what else weren't we supposed to say? We're not supposed to actually say the word segment. We we do that all the time. That's true. <laughs> we're not supposed <laughs> to talk about the Facebook page. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm supposed to mention my actual birth name. Uh, yeah, maybe they've just maybe they've given up on us. They're like, say uh, say whatever you want, you guys. Yeah, talk. And I, I need some mold cider. Um, all right. So <laughs> you and I, we we talk a good deal about tech, and that's certainly not from the perspective of experts, uh, whatsoever. But you know, Brian and I both have kids, and we also are a part of churches, and we're you know humans living in the United States in 2020. So technology is a part of our lives, whether we want it to or not. And we've been talking a little bit about this documentary, social dilemma, which Brian promises me he'll watch ASAP. I will. Um, But I found a couple of articles that kind of continue some of that dialogue and some, you know, somebody might be listening, thinking thought this was a Christian show. Like, why are we talking about Facebook? Why are we talking about technology? One of the things that I'm convinced of more and more is that uh, we're all being formed or shaped by something. And if we believe discipleship to Jesus or apprenticeship to Jesus is about formation, at least in part, um, it also, I think, concerns us spiritually and socially and physically what other things are shaping us. And so that's kind of why we introduce some of these things into our show, because we think it's relevant and interesting. And uh, I got two articles here, Brian, and I'm going to let you choose which one you'd like to tackle first. Yeah, I'd like to do this one. Former Facebook manager says, we took a page from Big Tobacco's playbook. At worst, I fear we're pushing ourselves to the brink of a civil war, he added. Yikes. Uh, speaking to Congress today, the former Facebook manager, first tasked with making the company make money, <laughs> that's a big job right there, right? <laughs> Did not mince words about his role. He told lawmakers that the company, quote, took a page from Big Tobacco's playbook, working to make our offering addictive at the outset and arguing that his former employee has employer has been hugely detrimental to society. Tim Kendall, who served as director of monetization for Facebook from 2006 through 2010, spoke to Congress today as part of the House Commerce Subcommittee hearing examining how social media platforms contribute to the mainstreaming of extremists and radicalizing content. He said, the social media services that I and others have built over the past 15 years have served to tear apart people with alarming speed and intensity. At the very least, we have eroded our collective understanding. At worst, I fear we are pushing ourselves to the brink of a civil war. As director of monetization, he added, we sought to mine as much attention as humanly possible. We took a page from Big Tobacco's playbook, working to make our offering addictive at the onset, at the outset. So let's pause there uh, <laughs> to hear the guy who was in charge of making Facebook make money, right? To how to turn Facebook into what it was to being profitable. 
uh, say that one of our examples was the addictive nature of big tobacco. That big <laughs> tobacco had a way, especially in the 50s and 60s, of, of, but still to this day, of making tobacco. Their goal was to get people addicted to it. And that's how big tobacco made a ton of money. And he's saying that was one of our models at Facebook. And this is somebody from the inner workings. Caveat, I don't know why he's no longer there, right? He could have a little bit of an axe to grind, but there's sure. no reason to believe this isn't true. He's under oath. And he says, that's what we're trying to do. We're tr- we were trying to make people uh, addicted to Facebook in a way that we could make money off of it. That's terrifying, man. You've talked <laughs> extensively about the way social media and everything is meant to be addictive. But here's a guy on the inner, inner workings at the very beginning going, that was our goal. You know how big tobacco worked? That's what we were trying to do. That's terrifying, I think. Yeah, let me read a a little more from this quote about uh, his analogy regarding big tobacco. He said, tobacco companies initially just sought to make nicotine more potent, but eventually that wasn't enough to grow the business as fast as they wanted. Just let that sink in for a second, by the way. Yeah. And so they added sugar and menthol to cigarettes so you could hold the smoke in your lungs for longer periods. At Facebook, we added status updates, photo tagging, and likes, which makes uh, which made status and reputation primary and laid the groundwork for a teenage mental health crisis, oh. allowing for misinformation, conspiracy theories, and fake news to flourish. We're like big tobacco's bronco delators, which allowed the cigarette smoke to cover more surface area of the lungs. But that incendiary content alone wasn't enough to continue to grow the user base and, in particular, the amount of time and attention users would surrender to Facebook. They needed more. Uh, if that sounds nefarious, it's because I believe at least to some degree it is. Now, if you watch like the social dilemma, one of the guys that uh, previously worked at Facebook, he said our initial goal for the like button was to like spread love, to spread joy. Like it's, mm. we were like, oh, I like that. I like that. From his account, he said, we actually never anticipated that, you know, getting likes would become something that people, young people and adults alike, by the way, would obsess over. Uh, he said that that wasn't even in our, in our mind. So obviously there's going to be some differing opinions here about uh, how nefarious, at least at the onset, some of these decisions were. But uh, I find the comparison. I don't know if you've ever seen like the movie. Thank you for smoking. Is that something you've seen? I have not. Nope. Okay. I, sh- I could have told you that. Um, <laughs> it's it's a get to the list. It's another one of those movies, though, that you kind of get a behind the scenes look at, you know, how, how these things become the problems that they are today. And you're right. I have talked about this extensively, maybe too much at this point. No, I but, think it's important. Well, and yeah. to reiterate the point, too, because everyone, you know, make your own decisions about social media and screen time and all that. That's up to you to decide. But don't for a minute think that the time that you're spending on it is accidental or that it's sort of this like passive vice that you, you know, you're still kind of choosing how much time I spend on it. Like the, the engineers and the developers and the amount of dollars behind it to make it as addictive as possible, that that's real. And again, everyone gets to make their own choices, but I think to, yeah, to link it to some of the tobacco industry's tactics is, uh, is pretty on the nose and a little, a little frightening to be honest. Yeah. He went on to say later, there's no incentive to stop toxic content and there's incredible incentive to keep going and get better. Yeah. I just don't believe that's going to change unless there are financial, civil or criminal penalties associated with the harm that they create without enforcement. They're just going to continue to be embarrassed by the mistakes and they'll talk about empty platitudes, but I don't believe anything systemic will change. 
the incentives to keep the status quo are just too lucrative at the mm. moment. Like, there you go. I mean, and some of you might be going, if your parents out there, like my kids aren't on Facebook, right? That's kind of an us older people are the ones on Facebook. Uh, but you know who owns Instagram is Facebook. And yeah, you know where man. my kids go? They go to Instagram. Like, it's yeah. the same concept. And so, man, like, I don't think we could talk about this enough because you and I are pastors who have seen, we've talked about seeing how Facebook is forming and in some weird ways, discipling our people in certain segments, specifically politically and other things that are really troublesome. And to know that this is the way it functions like big tobacco, uh, I think is, it needs to be a wake up call for, for parents uh, but pastors and just as individuals who who go on these things to think, oh, it's neutral. I get to just see pictures of my friends and this and that is just not the way this works. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, I know this is like most things nowadays, pretty controversial, but we would really love to know what do you think? What are some parameters or rules that you put in place for yourself or for your kids? Like we're we're here to learn. So if you have ideas or articles or other angles, perspectives, uh, we would love to hear them. And you can do all that over at the Facebook page. I've been trying lately to wrap the show up with something a little hopeful, something a little more positive, unlike the segment that we just did. So uh, <laughs> coming up next, wrapping yeah. up the show from Rich Velotis, leading from a life deeply formed by Christ. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. I am hoping that you have found a puppy to hug or snuggle or loved ones <laughs> or you're drinking some hot mulled cider or chewing gum. If, if, if that's yes. your jam, I, can't. <laughs> I, I knew that was going to get a yes from you. Yeah. Okay, here's a controversial question. What's the worst gum of all time? Oh, you're going to need to give me some time on that one. You don't have one for, for such a gum lover. I thought for sure you'd have like a, you know what? I don't have a a brand. I have a kind. I hate cinnamon gum. Oh, so, really? All right. I do. Well, cinnamon gum, and I'm not a big fan of spearmint gum. All other gums I'm good with, but those two I, I can take or leave. I don't think I could decipher any of the mints. Anything in the mint category, spearmint, <laughs> peppermint, it's all the same to me. I don't, I, I don't know if that's a okay. sign of some kind of mental deficiency or something, but... Uh, Blind testing, there's no way I could tell them apart. No way. Either really? Way. Oh, I totally could. You, wow. I, I mean, I'm not nearly in uh, as We all have our skills. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you should put that on the uh, Four Corners website. Um, all right. So Rich Velotis, someone we've talked about a number of times. He actually just came out with a new book a couple of days ago. Ah, is that true? Maybe a week ago. The Deeply right. Formed Life, which is what this article is uh, based on out of outreach magazine leading from a life deeply formed by Christ. I'm going to read a little bit of it. It's not long. It's really good. I think rich is one of those kind of um, he's one of those rising voices right now. You know, he I took agree. over for uh, Pete Scazzaro over there in New York. So he's sharp. He's pastoral. I think, I think he's got a lot of good to say. So here's how it begins in 1944, a young German pastor writing from prison and nearing the end of his life asked a simple question that countless people have returned to time and time again. In his correspondence with his friends, uh, he had been wrestling with many issues pertaining to the nature of religion, uh, the rapidly changing world, and the witness of the church in a time when Hitler was destroying countless lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, What is bothering me incessantly is the question what Christianity really is, or indeed who Christ really is for us today. Like Bonhoeffer, I am bothered by this question as well. 
This foundational question must be engaged in every generation. And as we hold on to it, we also must ask another penetrating question. We must, uh, we must also be incessantly bothered enough to ask, who are we really for Christ today? Both of these questions call us to seriously consider our lives. And if we can be honest, the current state of things is not encouraging. We find ourselves in a world increasingly shaped by dangerous rhythms, racial injustice, emotional immaturity, flippant sexuality, political idolatry, and individualistic consumerism, to name a few of the powers that are wreaking havoc in our lives and communities. How can it be that those who call themselves Christians live at such a violent pace that eliminates any semblance of being with Jesus in prayer? How can it be that those who identify as followers of Christ still hold deep racist beliefs about others? How can it be those who consider themselves disciples of Jesus live a life characterized by emotional dysfunction? How can it be that those who call themselves saved by Jesus live captive to political ideologies? How is it that those who called out from the world often live in indistinguishable ways from the rest of the world? These questions remind us that it is certainly possible to be deeply committed to being a Christian, but not be deeply formed by Christ. In light of this brief analysis, I believe there's a clear invitation for pastors. Pastoral ministry in this moment is a disorienting enterprise. Pastors are trying to maintain meaningful connections with their communities in the midst of a pandemic while navigating racial distress, economic upheaval, and a political maelstrom for good measure. How does one lead holistically and from a deep center? How does one create a formational environment conducive for the spirit to powerfully work in our midst? So I'll stop there. He's really kind of setting up the premise for his book. But I'd love to know, what what do you think of those bullets there, those sort of... um, probing, penetrating questions that that he asks of Christ followers. Uh, There's extremely challenging. And then his his line right after it, I think, is just the one that jumped off the page to me when he says, these questions remind us that it's certainly possible to be deeply committed to being a Christian, but not be deeply formed by Christ. Like that is such a a huge statement and such a w- one that you just need to chew on for a while. So yeah, those questions, how can we call ourselves saved by Jesus, but still be captive to political ideologies? We've talked about that. And we see these in our own lives and in the lives of people in our churches and around us. And yeah, I, I want to read his book because I think these mm-hmm. are the questions right now in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of uh, you know, polarization politically and in all sorts of other ways. These are the questions we as the church need to be asking one another. So I think uh, he's got me. I want to read his book now. Well, I, I we, t- we should book. have him on the show. I mean, and part of I the reason that part of the reason I put this uh, article here before the last one is there. It's still a conversation of formation, right? Because he asks, what is a deeply formed life? Simply stated, it's a life shaped by and for Jesus, which on the surface almost feels like a Sunday school answer that a lot of us would give, but his comment just above that though, about like, man, plenty of people are deeply committed to, but aren't deeply formed by. I'm really interested in that juxtaposition because a lot of people, uh, myself included at times, I'm sure will get defensive because like, Oh, are you questioning the, the depth of my commitment? And that's actually not what he's getting at. They're like, Oh, you can be deeply committed, but not actually deeply formed by like you can, you can really passionately believe something, but to be a disciple and apprentice of Jesus means more than just deeply held beliefs. Um, and that's part of what I find so interesting, especially, again, since this was written before the debates last night. Um, I think he's tapping onto something here that is just really, really timely. Yeah, he says five particular values com- excuse me, comprise this robust in- integrative paradigm. So 
the paradigm of a life not just shaped by uh, of having a life shaped by and for Jesus. So he says there's five uh, in it. Man, we do need to have him on to talk about these. Um, and he's going to go through them in this article. But oh, the man, there's so much to wrestle with here. He says formational compartmentalization. The pastor needs a deeply formed life to resist the ways of formational compartmentalization. By this, I mean that our communities need concurrent discipling along different lines. As a pastor who's experienced the impact of evangelical, Pentecostal, and progressive ways of formation, I've noticed how easy it is to compartmentalize our spirituality. And he's going to go into that. But it's so true, right? You and I have talked about it. we have our tribes, our denominations, our our groups or whatever else. And it's like the Pentecostals do this, the progressives do this, the evangelicals do this, the Anglicans do this, as opposed to we have things to learn from one another. Uh, there's a greater depth rather than just be like, nope, this is how we Baptists do it. You know, and I and I man, I resonate with that as we talk about unity and we talk about What's it mean to be the body of Christ? I think that's that's a really interesting one that uh, I'm not sure we uh, we all do very well for sure. Well, and we don't have time to get into the other five, but they include things like sexual wholeness and, and missional presence. But I I want to, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this book in future future episodes as well. But let me uh, let me just read the last couple of paragraphs. He talks about the future of Christian formation. He says the values I cover are intrinsically connected in many ways. For example, I propose that to talk meaningful about racism requires us to do the work of contemplation to work for justice requires a commitment to interiority to be at home with our bodies requires a commitment to wrestle with our past to do the work of prayer is to galvanize us into the mission. As I think about the future of Christianity in our world, I'm convinced that followers of Jesus have a great opportunity before us. The way of the world continues to swallow people in its pace, hostility, distractions, and shallowness. Having the right answers to the questions of faith is helpful, but will not do much to form people in the way of Jesus. We need more than answers found in arguments. We need answers found in our very lives. When we take seriously the task to follow Jesus and reflect his transforming power in all aspects of life, we will be at a place where the claims of the gospel take root in deep ways. I kind of just wanted to end on that note. There's a lot more in the article and, of course, a whole lot more in the book. But as as sort of a, a, a challenge, but also an encouragement to anyone listening, Christ followers and non-Christ followers alike, like we have an opportunity before us, I think, to model the ways of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness in the midst of upheaval, in the midst of chaos. And uh, at the very least, I'll just say this. Let's do the work of being kind to one another. As Samuel Johnson once said, kindness is in our power even when fondness is not. I think now is the time mm. for us to really recommit ourselves to be a people of love wherever we're at, regardless of our context or our place. And so that's kind of my hope and prayer for all of us and my hope and prayer for you. And uh, thanks for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope for your life.